Good morning, Memphis. Thank you for spending some of your Saturday with me. I'm Sanaa, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab a cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So with the pandemic and the changes to school instruction, I think many of us have been thinking about teaching and learning a little bit differently. So whether it's teachers who are rethinking online instruction or maybe delivering lessons online for the first time, or parents, right, who have had to take on that role of teacher at home, we're really considering how learning happens in new ways, right, and, and really thinking about what is needed to ensure student success in new ways. So to talk about this more, today I have joining me Dr. Dana Miller-Koto. Dr. Koto is an educational psychologist who aims to understand the cognitive and effective mechanisms that underlie mathematics learning and instruction. She is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Delaware in the School of Education and Human Development, collaborating on a project aiming to understand individual differences in how students learn fractions. Dr. Koto earned her PhD in educational psychology from Temple University, and there she contributed to developing the opportunity propensity model, which seeks to explain academic achievement when considering students' classroom opportunities and, and also the assets they bring into their learning environment, such as prior knowledge, working memory, and even their identities. So welcome, Dr. Dana Miller-Koto. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am doing well. It is so great to have you with us this morning. Um, so first, I just want to say how we met, which I think was on the social medias. One of them. <laughs> the social them. medias. <laughs> and I don't know who slid into whose DMs, but we ended up um, creating a writing group for ourselves. Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah. Which was like two summers, was it two summers with this? I don't even know, I can't, it's what been years time? now. What is time, <laughs> exactly, before the pre-pandemic. <laughs> yes, but yeah, so it was, you know, so one, you know, I love, you know, making social media friends, but then also we were able to translate that into like a supportive writing community. For sure. And um, we got some great work done. You got some publications out of the things that we were, you know, working towards. Mm -hmm. And so that was so awesome. And I just want to say like, I'm not an educational psychologist and I don't do anything around like math and science. <laughs> um, so, but it's so good, right? Because we're both academics and we can both like still support each other in like, hey, accountability for writing is so yes, important. That's what we share. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that's just a little bit about how we met. And I had been wanting to get you on the show for a while, but to be quite honest, I was like, I don't even know what like math learning is. So I'm like, how do I even like develop some good questions? So I'm not just like, so math teaching, what do you do? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Because I feel like <laughs> math learning for me has been so difficult. So I'm so excited to talk to you, the expert, about <laughs> how we do this learning process of math and then why it's, you know, so important, right? Absolutely, right. 
Oh yeah. Great. So let's just start with a little bit about how you got into this particular area of research. Sure. So a little bit about me. Um, so when I was, I guess, in the sixth grade, um, my sixth grade teacher, they were passing out applications for this relatively new school. The school was about 10 years old or not even 10 years old at that point. And it was a school aimed at kind of uh, training students to become or go into health science professions. Mm. And some of the big things were, of course, you have to master math and science, right? right. So uh, I applied. I didn't think I was going to get it. And I was like, ah, we'll just see what happens. This is the sixth grade. I'm a sixth grade Dana, right? So <laughs> making a huge decision because this right. is a school that went from seventh to 12th grade. So I was spending, a, I'd be spending like a good portion of my education in the same place. Um, and so when I got there, you know, I never felt like the person who wasn't, I didn't say, oh, I'm not a math person. I knew that math was something that didn't come as easy to me as other uh, of my peers, but it was never, a, oh, I'm not a math person or I hate math. Mm-hmm. When I got to my secondary school, um, it became very clear to me that there were ki- kids who were very well prepared for math. Um, they could, unless they were lying, they would go home, just do their homework. And then it was like, oh, I know all the answers. And I'm thinking, why is this so difficult for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, you know, going through seventh grade, eighth grade, uh, had a, the same teacher for like from ninth to 12th grade. And something he would always say to us was, you have to go home and do a hundred problems to get really good at this. That's intimidating for me because I'm thinking a hundred problems. I can't even get to the first two. (laughs) How am I going to get through a hundred? And so something about that always felt really off to me. Something about that felt like there's no way that me studying or trying to solve a hundred problems a night is going to make me an expert at this. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to grad school, I knew I wanted to study or I was applying for grad school. I knew I wanted to study something around math, but I wasn't really sure yet. I think a lot of students go to grad school like, yeah, I have a general idea, but we'll figure it out. And so when I got to, I think it was in my second year of grad school and I was taking a course, kind of, I think it was like something around the learning sciences. Um, And there was this concept of the worked example effect. And basically it was suggesting that solving problems is actually one of the worst ways to, to learn math. Wow. Um, yeah, that, that was like, I knew it. I almost feel like I have to email my, my teacher to tell them this. <laughs> um, but really, so that it suggests that, you know, when you replace half the problems a student is um, trying to attempt with a work, fully worked example. So a fully worked example would be the problem, all the steps up to the solution. And so replacing half of those problems with worked examples and students have an opportunity to study those examples. They have an opportunity to explain the example to themselves. Maybe they're presented with an incorrect example and asked what's wrong with the example. Mm-hmm. That's going to lead to much more. Um, that's going to lead to better learning than having a student just sitting there and solving these problems. And so I just in a way felt vindicated, but also <laughs> felt like okay, so this is an, an area of research that's born out of cognitive psychology, which is related to educational psychology, but not quite the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just got, became really fascinated. I became fascinated with the idea that, you know, there's a way that we can present problems to students that's going to help them learn math better. Um, and so it's kind of like that was the hook for me. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, I love that. You know, I think a few things as you were talking, I was thinking like one, you know, even though I would say I have a a very love-hate relationship with math and have, like, I took pre-algebra twice because I was like, I'm just, I like, I don't get it, but I feel very committed to learning math. And so I know I can do it. It's just a matter of like figuring out what works best. Right, right. 
Um, and the other thing that I, I find very comforting about math is that it is a pattern, right? And once you figure out the pattern, right, then it's like, oh, I can do this. But the learning or the process to get to actually understanding and making it make sense, like that's a whole process. And I also feel like when I was in like K through 12, that that whole like Asians are good at math stereotype worked against me because my teachers like would not help me. I'm like, right. no, I don't understand. Like, do you think it's just genetically in me? Like, right. And there's a lot of work that suggests that works really against Asian students. Like this, like this um, assumption that, oh, you're supposed to be really good at this. So yeah, you're not given help as often. And also it just becomes an isolating experience. So you know, some of the research um, talks about, you know, even though there is this learning aspect of like, okay, presenting problems in a certain way, there's also the affective aspect, the motivational aspect, right? Like, how do you feel when you're solving math problems? And if you're in a, stu- you're in a space where people are expecting you to do well, and you're not doing well, it's just, it's really counterproductive for everyone involved. Yes, yes. And that's how I felt about math a lot. I was like, I don't know how to do this. You think I do. I'm not lying to you. <laughs> like, help me. I need help. Right. I mean, I think in college, it translated because when I was an undergrad, um, I took like the most basic math class on the planet, I think. And it was called like everyday math or like math in everyday life. And it was very useful, <laughs> but I was like, <laughs> but I think it was probably like the most basic math instruction because mm-hmm. it was like percentages and like, you know, talking about like odds and stuff like that, like making kind of connections to things you might do in your everyday life, like gambling right. or trying to figure out how much of a discount you're going to get on a sale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I think I could have done more math if maybe the people who were instructing me had a different approach maybe or thought about it differently. And so is it really that math is like difficult to learn or is it that the way we teach math is maybe not the best? (laughs) I think it's a combination. And I think um, that's where some of the work that I've done on the opportunity propensity model, which I'll talk about in a moment comes in. It's like, it's no one, there's no one answer to Mm -hmm. this. It's really just, you know, there's just like a lot of competing factors, right? So you talked a little bit about a ton of them, right? Talked about this, how students feel about math. In the United States, we have a tendency to suggest to students, well, either you're a math person or you're not. Mm, And so that coming in is definitely going to prevent some students from um, persevering, right? Like you mentioned, you know, you know that math is something that, you know, you struggle with, but at the same time, you're willing to take on that struggle to get to an end goal. A lot of students are not going to go through that process. Once they hear that, okay, there's math involved. I am not a math person. I'm going to opt out of this, this conversation or this opportunity. So there's that. Um, yeah. So like the cultural piece of like how we talk about math in the United States, right? It's a lot of people associate it with this level of brilliance. Mm-hmm. And so once you've decided that you're not, you're not brilliant, then it's like, why would you participate? You'd probably want to participate in something that's more congruent with your belief systems or who you identify as, as a person, right? The other piece is, it's a lot of research that suggests, um, you know, in uh, some other countries, in other countries, Japan is one example, um, learning from errors, right? So this, again, going back to the culture of the U.S. where the way we, the way we teach math, we stay, stay away from learning from errors because we think, oh, if we introduce errors to students, that's they're going to hold on to that error and they're not going to forget, forget the error. When in actuality, we're finding in other countries that using errors is a great way to leverage teaching math to students, really highlighting the error and demonstrating this is why this is incorrect mm-hmm. and using it as an opportunity to have a discussion around math leads to um, better outcomes. 
Um, and I could, I could probably go on for another 20 minutes about like, what else is wrong with the way that we talk about and discuss math in the US? Um, but it, it is such a complicated um, number of, of factors that go into why we're not seeing students do as well. I mean, the huge reason I would say, number one over everything is large inequities, right? Mm -hmm. um, some students are just not gonna get the resources that they need yeah. to, to do well in math. Um, and I, I think of like even my experiences in my secondary school, we got new textbooks every year. I didn't know until I got to college that that was not everyone's experience. So yeah. when I'm getting to college thinking, wait a second, people have the same textbooks for like 10 years in their schools. Um, and that's a problem, right? Especially if you know that there's a new curriculum coming out with worked examples, for instance, and a school in a certain neighborhood is not getting access to those resources. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the huge thing is we have to acknowledge that inequity, large inequities are a huge reason why children are not doing as well in math as they could. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, was, I mean, that resonates with me so much because I was at one of those schools where it was like, especially in high school, where we just had the same books that were just there, you know, like <laughs> that was it. Um, mm -hmm. And so definitely that piece, which I think just goes into these broader expectations of like, if you're in a lower income neighborhood, then we have less expectations for you to do well. And mm -hmm. then on top of the cultural expectations around either you're a math and science person or you're not as if right. you can't learn or grow or you know change you know whatever mm -hmm. um or even just the gendered expectations on top of that right, right. so again right. like boys are more math and science and, and girls mm -hmm. aren't so then you just have these multiple levels of you know messaging around who mm -hmm. is a math person who isn't and right. and like you said if you've been told like oh you're not a math and science person then there's less kind of incentive for you to kind of like explore that more, right? right. Really Absolutely. just accept that. And then if you don't have the resources that might help shift that perspective, then it's just mm -hmm. kind of like, well, I'm just gonna, you know, yay for iPhone. <laughs> you know, I can just do <laughs> find something else to do. <laughs> right, exactly. You just find something else to do. Or um, like we said, just, I mean, if for a lot of my peers, knowing that we weren't math people, quote unquote, in high school, we just felt like, okay, well, what's something else I'm really good at? Oh, okay, writing. I'm really good at writing. Um, for the longest, I wanted to be a school psychologist. And mm. I thought, oh, I'll get to write reports. And it wasn't the kind of writing I thought it would be. Um, then I thought, oh, journalism would be great. Um, which it's really interesting now that I even ended up in this field because there's so much math involved <laughs> in doing research, uh, especially quantitative research. So it's interesting how we, we kind of write ourselves or just make a path for ourselves based on these messages we're being um, given. Right, absolutely. But I mean, you have the opportunity to really kind of reframe this messaging and to really help us rethink math, mm. our attitudes towards math, and even, again, approaches towards math as well. So I know you mentioned the opportunity propensity model. So would you like to kind of overview what that is? And then we'll kind of get more in, in depth into it. Sure, sure. So basically, this is a model that um, I've worked on for many years with uh, colleagues and my starting with my grad advisor, and I've continued this with work outside of my um, grad advisor. But essentially, what this model suggests is um, one way to predict how well children or students rather are going to fare over the course of their life is to understand this, for to understand achievement more broadly, three conditions have to be met, right? So the first condition is that uh, children have to be presented with these abundant, um, qua high quality opportunities, right? So an opportunity could be 
you've had a teacher, the teacher in your school who's been teaching algebra for 20 years and has got it down and they're excellent at explaining it, right? That's an opportunity. Um, living in a household that has the resources to buy you tutoring if you need it, um, lots of uh, math games, uh, books, these are, these are all opportunity variables or factors. Um, the second condition, so not only do for the first condition, you have to have access to these opportunities, but you also have to be equipped to take advantage of these opportunities. So when I say that, I don't mean the motivation necessarily, but having the, the prior skills, prior knowledge, right? You wouldn't try to teach a kindergartner statistics, right? That would be kind of ridiculous. <laughs> But making sure that students are able to um, take advantage of these opportunities. Um, if you have a student who, you know, let's say there's access to SAT prep at their high school, but they use afternoons to work at their local grocery store, you know, they are equipped to take advantage of it, but it's just the context is not providing, um, it's, there's not a necessary context for them to take advantage of that opportunity. So that's the propensity condition. But the first condition that precedes all of these conditions is these antecedent factors, right? These are things that occur earlier in time. They're usually things that um, a student or child does not have any control over. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, because we live in the US, we have to acknowledge that there are things that are gonna predict whether a student has access to these opportunities and is equipped to take advantage. So whether it's race or ethnicity, whether it's your zip code, which is a huge predictor of how well someone's gonna do over the course of their lifetime, your gender, um, how much family resources or your family socioeconomic status. These are things that are going to predict over well above and beyond a lot of other things, how many opportunities you're going to have access to over the course of your life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh, there's so much there to <laughs> unpack. Okay, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to dive deeper into this opportunity propensity model. You're oh, listening good. to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Dana Miller-Koto, an educational psychologist. And before the break, she was um, giving us an overview of the opportunity propensity model. And so I wanna talk more about this because as you mm -hmm. mentioned, some of these things we might be able to impact and then some of these things we don't really have control over, right? So like the antecedent factors, uh, we might not have control over as a student right obviously and then even as an educator we don't really have that much you know like we can't change what has already right. happened right mm -hmm. the factors but we can potentially change some of the other things so like you talked about the having opportunities right having these right. abundant opportunities um, both in school and at home so could you right. talk more about the in school setting how we could even create some of these opportunities absolutely so I think a couple of things that come to mind really quickly is um and these are not I don't want to suggest in any way that these are easy things to change because these are things that I'm sure people have been trying to tackle for a very long time. But one of the initial things I think of is, unfortunately, a lot of the most inexperienced teachers end up in schools that have the, the fewest resources. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, if you're a teacher, it's your first year of teaching coming out the gate and you end up in a school where your students are not reading at grade level, they're not writing at grade level, this is gonna create a, a, an environment where it's just like, okay, am I in over my head, right? Yeah. And so, really this emphasis or this push to have more experienced teachers 
working in environments um, that they can hit, that they have better classroom management skills, that they can better, they're a bit more equipped um, to, to help students who are in most need, right? Um, the other thing I would think is really, and again, these are not things that are easy to change, but when it comes to um, school funding, right? So how much how how much are students getting um, when they go to school? Are they getting new, new textbooks? These textbooks that are, uh, Department of Education is demonstrating that they're highly effective at teaching math. Um, do they have access to these things? A lot of it comes down to this, this access issue. And, um, you know, I think that there's an incentive, of course, for, for curriculum companies who work with school districts to provide like, oh, we have this new shiny curriculum, um, but it's not necessarily backed by any evidence that it's just gonna support student learning, right? So that's, those are a couple pieces. The biggest thing I wanna um, highlight though, long before high school, when kids have decided that they're either a math person or not, mm -hmm. is starting early, right? So the one of the big things with the opportunity propensity model is that we advise Prior knowledge is the biggest predictor of how well students are gonna do. Unfortunately, a lot of kids start kindergarten behind and those mm -hmm. gaps, or I don't even like the word gaps, but those differences that we see for kids um, in under-resourced communities versus kids who have these high, um, a lot of opportunities, these highly resourced communities, a lot of the differences in their prior knowledge when they start school, it, it accumulates, right? So it definitely those those um, differences get bigger over time. And so if we can provide more opportunities for students, not just when they start kindergarten, but also over the course of their schooling. So if they have access to extra tutoring in the first grade, um, if they have access over just every grade, if they have access to getting extra help, that's mm -hmm. gonna make a huge difference in how well they're gonna do. Um, I think that a lot of times we, emphasize these other shiny things like, oh, we just create this app and students can sign up on this app and they'll do really well. Or this, or just sign up to this, this website, right? Which costs $50 a month and not taking into account these other things that they may not have access to it. They can't pay for it. They can afford to pay for it. Um, so I think that the big thing is really this, this uh, and that's why a lot of people are these huge advocates of early pre-K, right? Mm -hmm. Starting kids early so they can have access to learning how to read counting, um, these are the things that are really gonna make a huge difference for a lot of students. Even if maybe they don't get the opportunities they should after that, they're still gonna be better off than they would have been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's so much in this. I mean, as we talked even you know before the break, talking about the broader inequities, right? That are embedded in students' opportunities um, and obviously the resources that they receive and then then just thinking about everything you just said, right? Like how can we maybe mitigate um, some of these differences that are happening? And it takes so much because we really, um, you know, we know that education is important, but I don't think we as a nation in the US have really, or are thinking of it as a common good. So we don't put this extra, you know, resources mm -hmm. or funding into it. So it can right. be very difficult. So even just thinking about everything you said, you know, in my mind, I'm like, okay, so what could we do, right, as a community, wherever you are, whether you're in Memphis or not, because these issues are happening, you know, everywhere mm -hmm. across our nation, like what can we do to, you know, help, you know, to make sure that students are getting, you know, have opportunities, but then even are kind of like building that base of knowledge so they can continue to build, you know, build and build and right, build on top right. of that. Absolutely. Well, the thing, one of the things that come to mind too is um, my favorite examples are that when I, if I grew up in New York City, um, which I acknowledge like 
as a city is kind of almost, we have too many things going on. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I really loved were a lot of the local churches that used to provide tutoring for really young children, Mm -hmm. teaching kids how to read. Um, I was also a camp counselor and then later an after-school coordinator um, for a lot of tutoring programs. And I felt like these are things that don't depend necessarily on the education system. Cause it, uh, again, a lot of the changes that are required to happen require it, it's so there's so many, there's so much bureaucracy involved. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it would it'd be naive of us to think that we can just quickly change all these things and everything's gonna be okay. Um, but I really thought those, uh, the churches and the local uh, community centers that were offering this free tutoring were some of the, the, the superheroes of, of all this. Um, these are kids who wouldn't have done very well without those those opportunities and free opportunities at that. Um, but I, I acknowledge that that's not a thing everywhere. So how do we make those opportunities more abundant in more places? Right, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's definitely opportunities for folks who are listening to get involved, right? Because there are a lot of great community outreach, a lot mm-hmm. of great you know resources. Again, not necessarily... Um, from the state or from, you know, right, but what you're saying, like community organizations born out of people's desire to see, you know, the kids in their communities excel. Um, So I think there's always opportunities. Now, as you were talking about, you know, how people might say, oh, you just like get this app or just, you know, get this extra tutoring, right? It costs money (laughs) that you may not have. Um, It made me think about, like free YouTube videos. And then it made me think, of course, about like Khan Academy. So what do you think about Khan Academy or similar kind of resources like that? Like, are those great places to go if we're thinking about math learning or what are your thoughts on that? So I think that not all of the, um, not all of them are created equal, right? So some of them are really great. I think Khan Academy is a great source um, for a lot of students. I think the only thing that I always struggle with a little bit for myself in terms of figuring out, even like for my nephews or family members is like, okay, well, is this teaching math in a way that's consistent with the way that I know how kids learn math? (laughs) From what I gather with Khan Academy, that's very much the case. It's very research oriented, Um, but I don't, I don't know that's the case for, for everything. And so that's, that's a huge thing. Um, I would offer if like, if there are parents listening or people who are interested in, in helping uh, students that they know that need extra help. One of the really cool things with the Department of Education or the Institute for Education Sciences, they always put out, um, regularly put out reports about um, the What Works Clearinghouse. So they mm-hmm. will give recommendations on, okay, what is helping, what, where are we seeing children making the most gains in math? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them will evaluate math curricula. So I know like illustrative math is one curriculum. Um, and I'm not, this is not um, me suggesting go out and get illustrative math, but these are just a couple of, of the curricula that, um, that people or people in the department of education have evaluated and said that, oh, these are really effective, um, math curriculum. So, um, you know, I think that that's one source and it's not, it's, these reports are free. You can go online to department of ed or IES.gov and look at what are people suggesting has worked for students and kind of make a decision from there. I know that Khan Academy is regularly evaluated because of just how popular it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so there, there's a, a lot of stuff out there. So I don't want to, I don't want to promote any one of them. <laughs> so I think that folks can make their own decisions by going to um, IES's website and seeing what has been evaluated and what's deemed most effective because these are like huge trials of just like t- over 10,000 kids that they're they're looking at 
Right. Oh, that's awesome. No, already that's great. So people can go, they can kind of search for themselves and find something uh, that is going to be effective, but also that might be in a style or, or, you know, whatever the presentation is that also is kind of, you know, resonates with them the most as well. Right, right. Exactly. They're consistent with, with what we see in, in, in research. So yeah, it's, I think that, um, and the cool thing too, about a lot of these reports, they're plainly written. So they're not written academic speak. So you don't have to like decode what they're saying as you're reading. So it's a good opportunity for a lot of people, I think. Okay, good, good. Yes. Because that can be a barrier, even for people who are (laughs) academics, like, come on, just give it to me. Like, tell me what I need to know. (laughs) Yes. I regularly feel like that. Like, am I, does my read comprehension? off like well, I don't understand this yeah. oh my goodness absolutely okay so I know you mentioned earlier um that fully worked examples are one way that really works that helps facilitate mm-hmm. student learning are mm-hmm. there or I mean I know that there are but what are some other things that really work and facilitate students math learning yeah so I mean I think this is an easy one so I almost feel like I'm cheating a little bit by saying it but <laughs> Um, you know, I'm sure we can all remember, if, depending how old we are, um, <laughs> that there was a time where we were learning math with manipulative. So I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember those uh, blocks where they you have one piece and they attach and they become mm-hmm. 10 pieces. Um, and I think that something that's leveraged a lot that we don't think about because we only really do it when kids are really young and then when they get older, we stop doing it. But these concrete manipulatives, mm-hmm. I love concrete manipulatives so much because I feel like it's a really great way to talk to kids about math that, in a way that they don't almost, they almost don't even know they're learning math. Yeah. For instance, um, there's a really great example of, uh, so even just basic equations, right? So if you say five plus four equals nine, right? Mm-hmm. You're trying to teach a kid that, okay, five plus four equals nine, that's the first part. But okay. the second part is that, um, both sides of the equal sign have to be balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times kids think that the equal sign means the answer is, but then when they get to um, more difficult algebra and there are two things happening on the side of the equation, they get they get freaked out because they're just like, wait a second, I have never seen it like this before. Right. And so one of the ways that I've seen um, researchers teach children and even and teachers are doing this now as well, um, one of the really effective ways I've seen that happen is like they'll have like a balance beam and they'll say, mm. okay, we have three marbles here and then we have four marbles here. How can we continue? How can we balance the, 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 the I think it's a balance beam they have sometimes. I forgot what those things are called. They're using physics as well. <laughs> um, I'm blanking on what it's called. Like a scale, basically. Yes, yes, yeah, a scale, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I think that's one really cool way um, because it really, unless you tell students, they don't know yet that that's, it can also be seen as an equal sign or um, a representation of an equal sign. Um, so that's, I think learning from concrete manipulatives is a really effective way to learn math. I think one thing I will say it's hard to do well um, is with work examples. Um, they're hard to do well because you have to figure out, well, how do I decontextualize this thing first with a concrete using manipulative and then kind of bring it back to this math content that I'm trying to teach. Um, but it's something I think that it's used a lot for young kids and not used enough for, for adults or um, young adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've seen statisticians teach statistics concepts with manipulatives and, and always think, why don't we do more of this? <laughs> um, so I think that the, the great thing about concrete manipulatives too is that there's so many um, uh, demonstrations on YouTube. There's, I think people are now making like subscription boxes with these things. So it's getting, yeah, it's getting to be 
so cool because I mean, people can buy it themselves. They can work with their kids on their own. These aren't things that are, are like sanctioned off or sectioned off for a certain community. So I think that um, that's another a great way to learn to learn and, and really make it stick in, mm-hmm. in math. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, always having those concrete examples or even just like the pictures in your mind, right? So you can remember Mm -hmm. even for yourself, if you've done a problem or learned something with concrete manipulatives in your mind, now you have this picture of like, I've done this before and it looked Mm -hmm. like this versus just trying to like hold on to numbers or equations, right? Right. In your head, right? It doesn't, (laughs) you're like, okay. (laughs) And I think you you bring up a really great point too, is that sometimes students will forget the equation, but they won't forget the example, the the concrete example they got. So they could almost work backwards from, okay, here's a concrete example. How do I translate this into a math equation or or a math concept? And I think, um, yeah, we don't don't talk about that enough. It's just sometimes there's a lot of focus on procedures and rote memorization. And really, uh, if you forget that, then you're kind of dead in the water, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So it's something that we really, uh, teachers think about it a lot. And I think researchers are now thinking about it too. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah. Yeah, I think those are really great ways that we can think about like how we can facilitate this math learning for even, you know, whether you're a, you know, formal educator or whether you're, you know, parent at home turned mm-hmm. teacher <laughs> um, educator of ways to kind of you know work with the students you know in our lives to help make math more manageable right because right? um, I think you know we do a disservice obviously because math is so much around us yeah it's ways everywhere. that we don't think about and actually that is what I wanted to ask you could you talk about you know, even why math learning is so important. I think we kind of jumped into the conversation, like assume like we know that math is important, but could you talk about why math learning is so important? Absolutely. So I'm going to look at it from two different ways. Um, I agree with both of them to a certain extent. Well, I agree with one of them wholeheartedly and the other one like, "Mm, it's kind of. Um, So (laughs) I start with the kind of and then we'll move to the like, nope, this is the reason. Um, And the reason I want to start here is because this is kind of how I start all my papers when I'm writing. So, you know, you're writing your introduction, you're like, okay, I have to sell this to someone. And I think the way that we, we sell math research or the importance of understanding how kids learn math from a, from a a STEM uh, perspective. So like, oh, we have to get kids ready for STEM. Mm -hmm. Um, One way to, and it's a very capitalistic way of thinking about it. It's just, oh, in order to be really competitive on a national, international stage, Mm -hmm. or to get kids interested in um, a STEM job, especially if you're coming from an under-resourced community, one way through up for upward mobility is to major in a STEM major, right? Mm -hmm. And that is a fine reason but it's not the only reason and shouldn't be the only reason right I mean if a kid wholeheartedly has all the resources to do well in math and decides I want to write I want to be a journalist (laughs) journalist then it's just like well are we going to tell them well you don't need to learn math you're fine no that's that's not a good reason (laughs) so I think an even better reason to your point about like your everyday mathematics class that you took math is everywhere and making important life decisions requires this deep math knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. There's um, a story that comes to mind. It's not quite specific to math, but it's specific to just having um, everyday skills. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really famous example in the school psychology literature. This, um, And it was actually, I'll plug really quick um, this episode of, uh, I can't even think of that podcast at this point. <laughs> I think it was Radiolab. So Radiolab was talking, I, I was first introduced about it um, through Radiolab. Um, this guy, Larry P. He was a man who lived in California 
And from a very young age, he was assessed using um, some much older intelligence tests mm -hmm. and they placed him in special education. And come to find that he wasn't getting any of the resources he should have been getting based on this one test, right? This one test, like uh, laid out the foundation for the rest of his life. Yeah. And later on in his life, he gets this letter from the state of California saying he um, qualifies for resources because of this, this malpractice. Mm -hmm. And he didn't get, he didn't understand the letter and he didn't, wasn't able to, um, actually go out and get these resources because he didn't have the foundational skills. He didn't understand the letter. He wasn't able to decode what they were asking him to do. Mm -hmm. And I th always think of that as we are literally telling people you need to be good at math to do well in STEM when really you need to be good at math for yourself. You need to be yeah. make, make decisions. You got to figure out, okay, what kind of mortgage am I trying to get? <laughs> what does my budget look like? How much do I need to do to double this recipe so I don't poison my family? Like these are really important things to think about, but I don't think we think about that, at least as researchers, we don't think about it in that. We always think of it, what about, oh, jobs the kids are going to get? It's like, yes, but how can we also make sure they have full lives? And I yeah. think math is really a path to living a full life. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, I love that. I love that idea. Math is the path to living a full life. Yes. <laughs> um, that That's like such a good slogan, but it's so, it's so true. <laughs> because even as you were giving these examples, I was just thinking like, sometimes I don't want to make two dozen biscuits. Like I only want to make like six. <laughs> Great. Like, it's just me. What am I going to do with all these biscuits? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't need to do that. Or even now that I'm like on this nutrition plan, I had to like weigh and measure stuff, oh, but like yeah. make the conversions between, mm -hmm. you know, metric system and all that. Like that's everyday math mm -hmm. um, or, you know, tipping at restaurants or of course my favorite, like figuring out that discount. That's, you know, <laughs> that's when math really comes in handy. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I, I always bother my husband when I'm like, oh, babe, can you come over here? And we'll be in the supermarket. Can you look at some of the unit prices? for this is this a good is this a good price and he always laughs because he's like you have to figure out how to do this at some point like no why would I do that I have you here <laughs> exactly exactly but yes I, yes but yes math is what we need to be successful and live a full life mm -hmm. um looking at those unit prices which I also do when I'm at the grocery store I want to know which one of these am I supposed to look I need to save right. these coins like I need to know but also just thinking about like if you are making bigger purchases and right. thinking of about interest and compound interest Absolutely. and like you know you don't have to understand it you know completely but you have to have an idea a baseline like you said still those right. foundational levels yeah to then make informed decisions right and the saddest thing is that most of our students don't even have those right so we're expecting them to get to calculus because we want to be able to say oh we had this many students in our school get to calculus and it's like well they can't even tell you how much they would end up paying to go to college <laughs> um, and how much student loans they're gonna take out, end up taking out after it's all said and done, right? Um, so yeah, it's, 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 we, want, we want people living full, not just having great careers, but having a full life all around. Yes, yes. I love this idea of a full life because I don't think that, you know, a career, a great career or a high earning career in and of itself is, motivation enough, right? Like people mm -mm. still need to feel fulfilled and they still need to have some level of enjoyment for the things that they're doing and not just, okay, I'm going to go into a STEM career because yeah. of the salary I might get. 
Exactly. Exactly. Some, one of the jokes that, um, I have a really good friend who he's a basketball coach in New York and he tell, jokes with his students and says, how are you going to figure out how much these endorsements are going to pay you if you don't have the foundational math knowledge? And he's just like, you know what, that's a really good, that's a really good example of Dr. Garner. So <laughs> I always think that's a really great example of just, yeah, math is everywhere. You, you can't, you, there's no way out of it. You can't get out of it. Right. Absolutely. You cannot get out of it, but imagine thinking you're not a math person. So then what does that mean for a life filled with math? Right. Right. All all of these, these um, contexts are different environments where you just feel like, oh, I'm going to opt out. It's like, well, you kind of (laughs) can't. Exactly. You can't, you cannot, because at very baseline, we all are probably thinking about some sort of budget, even if we don't think about it proactively, we are inherently creating a budget for ourselves every Mm -hmm. time we get paid. And so again, there's that math, that everyday math. (laughs) Right, right. How much of my paycheck should I be putting away? Right. It's like, well, I mean, these Excel spreadsheets that exist all over the internet are great, but it's like, you could also just do it yourself. And right. Figure it out, right? Um, so yeah, it's everywhere. And um, to your point about uh, people who don't see themselves as a math person, again, like if you, if that student just had maybe more of a push, I had a great physics teacher in high school who he always, he called us all doctor. Cause he mm-hmm. said, you all are going to be doctors. He just decided that out the gate. But the other thing was he always reminded us that like, you can get as far as you need. You just ask, remember you need, to, you need to remember to ask for help. And I love that because it took less away from, it, it reminded me that, you know, yet we all are going to struggle at some point. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's not just working harder. Sometimes working hard is not enough. And he's like, you need to remember, just ask for help. We're here. You have your peers, you have your parents, you have a lot of people. And maybe you can't ask your parents. Maybe you can ask your peers. You can ask me we're all here. We're, we're your cheerleaders. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, if, if every student had a teacher like uh, Dr. Sorelli, my, my high school physics teacher, I, I doubt he would ever listen to this, but if he is, <laughs> tell him I love you. I still think of you, Dr. Sorelli. Um, but if you had someone, a teacher like that, who's encouraging you and reminding you, like, we are your village, we will, we will make sure that you are, are set. And I think that you know, um, a lot of it, so much of it is just like how you see yourself yes. and like this kind of like social script of, okay, this is what a non-math person does. Therefore I will do these math things. It's like, no, don't even think about not being a math person. Like you, you can't opt out of this. Right. So what are the things that you can do to make sure that you can thrive? Yes, absolutely. I love that. So for anyone who is listening and has thought of themselves as a non-math person today, guess what? throw that out the window. You are a math person and you can, all you have to do is ask for help. I love that idea. Like, you know, you can get as far as you need. Um, you just have to ask for help. And I love that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So true. It's so true. Well, let's go ahead and take a quick break. Uh, you're listening to let's grab coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and I'm here with Dr. Dana Miller-Koto, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Delaware in the School of Education and Human Development. And this morning, we have been chatting about all of our favorite subjects now uh, because we're all math people. So yes, we've been talking about math. We've been talking about kind of what facilitates math learning and even some of these really unhelpful scripts around 
around math that we've all kind of bought into that math is only for certain people or, you know, like either you have it or you don't. Um, but really, um, Dr. Cota has been reframing that for us and helping us reclaim, you know, our rights to math and being great at math. Such an important conversation. Um, so I'm really interested to kind of switch maybe a little bit or maybe not. Um, I'm really interested in this idea that I heard you talk about of cognitive load. Mm -hmm. And I thought about this, you know, even in my own life with the pandemic and all these extra external stressors and how I often feel like, oh, pandemic brain, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, But when I heard you talk about cognitive load, I was like, oh, I think this is it. Like, this is, you know, like I'm overloaded. I don't know what the correct terms are, but so could you tell us like, what is cognitive load? Why is that important? How is it related to learning? Yeah, yeah. So this idea of cognitive load, um, so I, I just want to, as a quick aside, so I study more um, a related concept called executive functions, but for the purpose of this talk, I'll talk about cognitive, uh, cognitive load. But if people are interested, they can also look into this concept of executive functions, which is very, um, in working memory really, which is a dimension of executive functions. Um, but people can look into that for more information because um, that's a more a much broader topic that I think might give people a little more um, insight. Mm -hmm. um, so cognitive load is this idea that you are, when you're engaging in a problem or really anything, let's say you're watching TV, um, you're driving, you, um, different pieces or stimuli um, different anything in your environment, sounds, sights, um, feelings are competing for resources. You're, and, and this is, so you, each of us have a, a load, right? Mm -hmm. um, and our load can, one person's load might be higher than another person's load, but really it's the idea that we're, it's all competing for resources, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're trying to solve a math problem and you hear music out the window, that's your brain is competing for resources to listen to that. And so as you keep adding these like extra elements, whether it's music, whether it's like baby brother crying, um, someone singing in the shower, um, it's reducing the amount of uh, resources you have to pay attention to the math problem, right? And so I think in the pandemic, this is a really great example of the idea that we are over, we're completely being inundated with news. I mean, the, this past news, last year's news cycle has been insane, right? Mm -hmm. I don't, I can't remember a time where I just felt like I need to stay off Twitter and Instagram for a week. Mm -hmm. um, so you have these competing for resources, but you're also, we're also feeling like um, stressed. We're feeling stressed. Some of us are feeling isolated. Some of us are feeling um, they have, we, some of us have taken on more because we're in, indoors. So we're saying, well, okay, I'm going to do like P90X finally, and I'm going to start this <laughs> diet. And I'm also going to try to like publish a book. Like that's a, those are a lot of things for one person to manage, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think um, in particular for the pandemic, I think it's it's really important to think about, can I like shift some of these? <laughs> can I, can I, if you have this, this load of 10 items, which I'm oversimplifying for the sake of this conversation, but if you have this load of 10 items that are competing for your time, your attention, mm -hmm. how can you reduce the number of items? Um, that is not by any means easy for everyone, right? I have a sister who's who's working from home right now with a three-year-old who <laughs> demands a lot of her attention sometimes. <laughs> that is not something, unfortunately, she can take off her list. Uh, fortunately, unfortunately, because he's, he's a gem. Um, <laughs> But you know, it's if you can, what what can you 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 push push off for a little bit? Because the other thing too with cognitive load is, um, if you're low, if you're overloaded, for lack of a better word, 
um, your performance on a certain task is gonna suffer. It, you're not gonna do quite as well. Um, and we see this in, in a lot of the math research that we do, especially with worked examples. If you add too many elements to a problem, um, the student is gonna become overloaded and feel like, well, some students will become overloaded and feel like there are too many elements here. I can't fit them all together. So I'm just gonna focus on the elements that I can and maybe it, that's not enough. Maybe you need to focus on all the elements. So now you have a bunch of pieces of a, pro, a problem missing and then your, your performance suffers. So it happens not just in math learning but it's happening everywhere. We're seeing um, a lot of us are having a hard time remembering things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think uh, it, it's something that's really common. And I think we're all suffering from it right now but um, it's something that we yeah, really just need to think about like, what can we, what can we take off this list? What can we, what, how can we lighten the load, so to speak? Right. right. Yes, absolutely. I feel that so much because my brain, I'm just like, <laughs> I can tell that my brain isn't operating at maybe a level or mm -hmm. at, you know, that it once did. And I right. know it's because we're, you know, taking on so much new information, but also having to do a lot of decision-making that we normally wouldn't have to do in right. evaluating, you know, like what's safe, what's not safe, you know, just, it's just so much. So right. we've added, you know, more to those kind of daily tasks. Absolutely. Um, so I definitely feel that. Now, I know you mentioned that um, for your area of expertise um, is actually more so in this broader um, under a uh, uh, broader umbrella of executive functioning and thinking about working memory mm -hmm. and how that actually um, is related to if we think about this math learning or even you know what mm -hmm. we're doing in the moment. Um, so could you talk more about that? Sure. So okay, executive functions. You might think of it as. Um... I had a mentor who described it as the air traffic control system of the brain. So mm -hmm. it controls your thoughts, your behaviors, what you direct your attention to. Um, and then it has, so that's the umbrella term. And then there's just three dimensions of executive functions. So there's attention, um, there's inhibitory control. So your ability to really kind of ignore distractions. Um, so that's your attention, the attention piece, but there's also cognitive flexibility. So your ability to switch between tasks or goals. Um, so let's say you're solving a problem and you decide actually, eh, this isn't the way I wanna solve it. Uh, I, I'm instead of working for the left side of the equation, I'm gonna work on the right. That's mm -hmm. being able to flex, flexibly shift cognitive flexibility. Um, there are better examples, but I think for the sake of this conversation, that works just <laughs> fine. And then working memory, which is probably the one that has been around the longest and has been studied by philosophers and psychologists. It's very common, but that one is the one that suggests um, we're able to store information briefly and manipulate it or process it. So it's almost like a processing space. You're getting this information from the environment. You have to figure out what to do with it, process it, manipulate it in some way, and then use it for something else. So a really popular way of measuring this working memory is let's say someone asks you or says, I'm going to give you a string of numbers and you're going to say them in the reverse order. That immediately would give me some anxiety. So we could talk a little bit about how anxiety affects your executive function <laughs> performance. When someone says, all right, so if I say 215, you would say 512, right? So that's just a really simple example. And then and the string of numbers would increase until you get like a ton of errors and then you stop the task, right? Um, so that's a, one example. But even in the real world, you might think of working memory as, let's say you're in the grocery store, and you have $20 and you say, okay, I have 20 bucks to spend on dinner. I'm going to, I'm going to stay within this $20. And as you're adding items to your cart, you have to deduct the amount of each item 
from the $20 and also keep track of how much money you have left. That's a huge, that's a big working memory challenge for a lot of people, um, including me. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's working memory is, is highly related to so many different outcomes. It's related to your math ability. It's related to certain um, depression and health outcomes. It's related to so many different things, but I think it's become really popular recently because people are realizing one, it's related to um, a lot of academic outcomes and two, people are trying to figure out, well, can we train? Can we improve executive functions on its own and in some way then improve math outcomes? Mm -hmm. um, and so we are all using our executive functions. And I think our performance is probably suffering similarly to how I explained cognitive load because of all this competing information. What are we paying attention to? What are we able to ignore successfully? Can we switch between tasks and goals really well right now? Can we hold information in mind and manipulate it? And a lot of us are not doing as well because there's just so much information um, that's interfering with our attention. Yeah, absolutely. I just learned so much just from that because I'm like, oh, <laughs> my working memory is not working. Like <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yes. A lot of people are saying the same thing. It's just, it's, yeah, we're, we're all dealing with a lot more than usual. Right, right. We indeed, we really are. So from your research, are there ways that we can improve any of these executive functions? Are there ways we can improve our working memory, for example? So the research on this topic is mixed. Um, I think for the most part, most people are pretty pessimistic about being able to train executive functions. However, I will say um, there are some early uh early publications coming out, maybe not that early, within the past couple of years, suggesting that in order for executive function training to be really effective, you have to contextualize the executive function task within the domain that you're hoping to improve. So if it's reading, you have to make sure the executive function task relates to reading. If it's math, it has to be contextualized within math. And those are the instances where we're seeing better gains in executive functions and in the domain and in reading. So previously we we're seeing working memory training research that only trained working memory and you didn't see any transfer to anything else and why would you right if you're only training for for working memory but when it's working memory within the context of reading that's when we're observing better gains in, in both domains so um still early research but i think um the couple of studies that have demonstrated gains it's pretty promising and i think um hopefully in 10 years we can say that the working memory training <laughs> or executive function training is effective Okay. All right. Well, that's definitely something to look forward to if we have any, you know, executive functions left, you know, but after we get through this pandemic, maybe we can, you know, expand them. Absolutely. So we're almost at our time, at the end of our time together this morning. Uh, I know we've covered a lot of ground. I've learned so much, um, but for folks who maybe have, you know, just tuned in, is there any kind of one or two things that you want to leave people with that maybe they can apply in, in their lives or in their, the lives of their students in their life? <laughs> I think the biggest thing goes back to like this idea of the, the who gets to be a math person sort of idea. And I know we talked a lot about a lot of different things, but I hope the big takeaway here is just that it so much of it is about framing, right? So if you're a teacher and you have students who are not motivated in math, right? I think the idea that they can nor we can normalize errors, learning from errors or learning from misconceptions or learning from our mistakes in the math class is one big thing. But also this idea that there's no such thing as a math person. <laughs> like if I think that if we can change the culture of math classrooms to get away from 
you may not, you may have struggled in math in the beginning of the year, but I'm going to make sure by the end of the year that you are doing amazing in math. I think if you can instill that in your students, then that is, that's, that's a huge win because that, that, that's just going to change their whole mindset. And, and that's a, that's a big part of, of how much students are going to persevere in math. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that. There's no such thing as a math person. I yes. Absolutely, absolutely love that. Well, Dr. Dana Miller Coto, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I know I've learned so much. So I know that our <laughs> listeners too have learned so much that is directly applicable to our daily lives. So just thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I learned so much. I am going to like Google executive functions. I need to know more. Wow. Thank you so much to Dr. Dana Miller Coto. I mean, really, my mind is blown. I learned so much. Um, you know, for everyone who is listening, I think this is a great time to remind you, you can also listen to the archived episodes on wyxr.org. Org. And of course, wherever you are in the world, you can tune in live on wyxr.org. Uh, but this, this episode was just filled with so much great information. I know I'm going to go back and listen to this show again, and you can share it with a friend as well. Again, wyxr.org, let's grab coffee page, you'll find it there. So for today's positive note, I just want to remind you of something that Dr. Miller Cotto said, which is that math is the path to a full life. Yes, I love that. And the fact that, you know, there's no such thing as a math person, right? We all can do math and we all use math in our daily lives and we need it so that we can live, you know, full lives. Um, So that's really exciting to know that we all can be, you know, math people and we all our math people. This has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I can't wait for you to join me back here next Saturday morning at 9 a.m.